Today we're going to uh, cover an entire chapter once again. And uh, sometimes we do that. Sometimes it seems like a, uh, a, a pretty big endeavor. I think our chapter today is kind of on one sort of theme. And it's a theme really that you see in our culture. It's uh, a question that's being asked. It's a, uh, it's a topic that people have an opinion on in uh, the culture around us and even in uh, the church culture in the United States. And um, it kind of has to do with the idea that if God is pleased with you, then your life will be filled with blessing and prosperity. And that's a notion that uh, you don't have to look too far to find. You can see that in conversation with people. You can uh, see it in uh, the way people view the world as seen in the news and, and whatnot. If God is pleased with you, then surely your life will begin to look up and will begin to look better. And uh, even the prayer request that, th- that we uh, brought forward this morning about different individuals who are going through very, very difficult times, it strikes us or, or may strike us as, you know, asking the question, why is this person suffering? Uh, you know, and especially as Christians, this person is right with God and, and uh, has been redeemed and all of that, and why would this person have to suffer? And so that's a question that, that is out there and, and uh, that we ponder sometimes, and you can find more or less biblical answers to that question, but everybody's got an answer to it, some kind of an answer. And uh, so our, our task today, what we're going to look at, is find what the Bible tells us happens in this life to God's children. What sorts of things happen to God's children? And likewise, what sorts of things happen to God's enemies in this life? And so our passage today is going to uh, address those questions. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, and we're going to do uh, the entirety of this chapter this morning. As you're turning there, and before we get started, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we come to you this morning acknowledging that you are our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer, acknowledging that we are utterly dependent upon you for our next breath. We're dependent upon you for the life that we have. We're dependent upon you for salvation. And so we acknowledge who you are and we worship you and we give you honor as our God, as our Lord, as the one and only. There is none like you. We worship you and we bow down. We praise you for what you have done. And even the things we're going to read about this morning and talk about this morning, we praise you for this salvation that we have in Christ. Father, I do pray that you would help us to be all here in our minds, thinking about our passage, thinking about your word, thinking about these topics. Help us not to be distracted. We pray that your spirit would be at work using your word in our hearts this morning as we submit to you and listen to what you have from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have uh, taken the month of July off and we are back into the book of Acts. Uh, We preached on different topics on encouragement and had a couple of missionaries throughout the month of July. And uh, so now we're going to come back to Acts and I sort of want to look back a little bit and bring us up to speed on what we're talking about. 
Of course, we saw in uh, chapters 1 and 2 that uh, there was big transition and the Holy Spirit came in a, a very new way in chapter 2 and was doing new things. And, and uh, these were signs that uh, the kingdom of God is upon us and, and um, that God is at work. The new covenant is, is uh, in full effect. And, and we see that the, the uh, apostles were told to, uh, to stay in Jerusalem until they received the Spirit, and then they were to go out, and, and of course they waited there, and then they received the Spirit, and what did they do? Well, they stayed there, and they continued to preach and uh, ministered there. And not that they were being disobedient by any means, because when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, thousands came to Christ, and now it was time to disciple these people. It was time to, to uh, 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 help them understand the gospel more, more fully and to uh, disciple them, invest in them start churches and grow those, etc. And you see in the next couple of chapters the ministry of the early church as they figured out this Christian life uh, thing together and what it means to be in community like that, what it means to be re- uh, redeemed in Christ. And then you see that they began to um, encounter some difficulty. And they were various of them were arrested at different times and, and uh, put in jail and, and whatnot. And you see that kind of culminate with uh, Stephen in chapter 7 where he preaches that great sermon And he's outlining salvation history, what God has done to bring salvation in Christ to uh, to his people. And so as a result, uh, Stephen is killed at the end there. And we're uh, so we now we have our first martyr. And what happens is the the church that had stayed mostly there in Jerusalem now scatters and uh, begins to go out for fear uh, of this persecution. And they take the gospel with them. And and you see um, you see the gospel going to different places to new people groups. And, and so it's not just a Jewish thing anymore. Now it's gone to uh, the Samaritans as well, and it even goes to the Gentiles. And so it's a very interesting uh, development and expansion of what's going on in, uh, in those chapters uh, through, uh, through the book of Acts. And we have some detailed accounts of the gospel going to these groups. And, and they were not second-class uh, Christians, as it were. The Holy Spirit came upon them in the same way. And there were the similar evidences. And, and the apostles were saying, look, the, uh, the gospel has gone to Gentiles also, just like the gospel has come to us. And so salvation has, uh, has gone far and wide. And, and so uh, you see that development. You see the, 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 the development of the church up in Antioch and how it was a strong and growing church. And, and uh, we get to know Paul a little bit more, who's called Saul at this point, uh, or at least we know him in the book as Saul at this point. And uh, the church at Antioch is growing and, and uh, the things that are going on. So we see that there's been a great expansion from Jerusalem and the gospel has gone out and people have come to Christ. And uh, so now in chapter 12, we kind of flash back to Jerusalem and we see what is going on there. You're going to see that as we're reading through our chapter, there's a, there's a theme kind of that we follow all the way through, or maybe a, a character, I should say, not, not a theme because various things happen, but, uh, but the character that we see is Herod. And we know the name Herod. Well, there were lots of Herods, and it was sort of a family name, kind of. Uh, and so there were lots of Herods in the Bible, and this Herod that we have is Herod Agrippa I, and he is the, the, the enemy and he's not just an enemy, as in one of many, but he's sort of the main enemy at the time. He sort of represents Satan, as it were. He's like the main thrust of the uh, uh, of the enemy's attack, of Satan's attack on the church and whatnot. And so uh, he is sort of the enemy. He's representative of 
um, uh, of the satanic attack against the church. And so all through our chapter, we're going to see that it follows this enemy and what happens with this enemy and what this enemy is able to do, what he accomplishes and, and what ends up happening to him. And so uh, beginning there in chapter 12, I want to look at this uh, political execution that this enemy does as he makes his initial uh, sort of attack on the church here. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And so we see right off the bat that we have another martyr. And this martyr is uh, the first of the apostles who's killed. And so now we actually have one of the apostles dying at the hands of the enemy. And so he was... Uh, arrested, uh, Herod's laying violent hands, and he, uh, he uh, generally on the church or some who belong to the church, and particularly he finds James, and he has James put to death with the sword. And we can tell this is a politically motivated kind of thing because of that type of death. Uh, putting the person to death by the sword was an indication that this was uh, some sort of an uprising or or some sort of a political uh, execution. This wasn't uh, death on a cross. This wasn't something different like that. It was, it was uh, death by the sword. And so you kind of see behind the scenes that really what Herod is going for here is something political. He's, he's come after the church. And well, who, who is this Herod guy? He's, he's the grandson of Herod the Great, who had been alive during the birth of Jesus. And so it's the same family, and it's a very similar position so that he can even be called king here. He had uh, grown up uh, mostly in Rome and uh, had gone to school there, and he was buddies with people like Caligula who would later become the emperor. And so he was a kind of a playboy. And actually in Rome, he sort of got himself into so much debt that he kind of had to run, run back to uh, where his family was from in, uh, in this area. And, and uh, he ended up developing some uh, political connections through Caligula and others and was appointed uh, authority over this place and that place and kind of cobbled together a very large kingdom in the area. And so he was, he was very politically minded. And uh, he, when, when he came back to Jewish regions and he was, he was ruling over Jewish people, he himself wasn't a Jew. He was Edomian or Edomite. He was, uh, he was from Edom. And so it's a, a neighboring people. It's a, a sort of a cousin of the Jews. But he himself acted, pretended to be, and outwardly showed that he was an observant Jew. And so he would follow the rules and the rituals and he would hold the feasts and he would do the things that would make him look good to the eyes of the Jews that he was ruling over. And similarly, he would, uh, in order to maintain peace in the region, he would put down any kind of uprising that rose up. He didn't decide, oh, this is a good uprising or this is a, a bad one or whatever. Even if the uprising was not against him, if it was against or something that threatened the peace in the region, he would actually go after that uprising and put that, that uh, uprising down. And that seems to be what happened here with James, the son of Zebedee and uh, the brother of John, that he was viewed as part of an uprising, something that threatened the peace of the region. And so uh, he has him put to death and for these political kind of purposes. And we'll continue on in verses 3 and 4 there and see kind of how this continued. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so he... He, he makes this one attempt and he catches James and he has James put to death and that makes the Jews happy. 
So he thinks, well, you know, more is better. And so he goes and he arrests Peter. He's going to do the same thing with Peter. And uh, he, he arrests him, intending to do the same thing with him, intending to further uh, kind of curry favor with the, uh, um, the, the Jewish people that he was over. And so he arrests Peter. And he has to wait until the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and, and uh, before he puts him to death. And so but that's his intention. And so there's Peter. James has just been killed. And here's Peter sitting in prison. I wonder what he was thinking. It doesn't tell us what he was thinking. But he was sitting there and, and in prison and had been put there by a Herod. There was a Herod involved. It was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was the time when Jesus was arrested and, and eventually put to death. It was in Jerusalem, the same place Jesus had been arrested and put to death. And so there are a lot of similarities there. Not to mention the fact that it was instigated by Jewish leaders. And so he's, he's sitting there and he's probably thinking of these similarities. He's probably also remembering prophecies about how he was going to die. He himself would be led away to a place he didn't want to go and was going to be put to death. And he's probably thinking, well, I guess this is it. The Bible doesn't tell us that he was thinking that. I'm just conjecturing about what might have been going on in his mind. But we see that, that uh, Herod intends to put him to death. And there he is in jail. And it's interesting, if you, you look at how many soldiers they put on him. Like, you'd think Peter was this rough-and-tumble kind of guy who was going to take out several guards or something because they had, they had shifts of... Uh, four different guards at a time throughout four shifts of the day and they would take one guard and he would be handcuffed on one side and they took another guard and he would be handcuffed on the other side and then there would be two guarding the doors right as if peter were uh, going to get away somehow and of course there had been an instance in the in the past in the book of acts where the lord did spring him and and the chains fell off and the doors opened and he left and went to the temple and preached and so uh, maybe maybe herod had reason to be concerned that he would be able to escape but they have him chained up. He's not going anywhere. And he's about to die. And so we see verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And so you see the church who's on the outside and they've looked and they've seen that James was put to death. And now Peter, who's been their leader for over a decade now, this is about A.D. 44 when this is taking place, Peter, who's been their leader all this time, he's arrested, and the intention is for him to be put to death also. And so what do they do? Do they run in fear, or do they hide, or do they disband, or what do they do? Well, they gather together, and they're praying. They're making earnest prayer. They're intent on praying for this situation, and, and praying for Peter, and praying for the church, and... And this is an encouragement to me. Something about prayer, one of the great truths of prayer is that it's, it's an acknowledgement of our utter dependence. The fact that we cannot accomplish this thing on our own. And so we recognize something that's always true. We are always dependent upon God. We are always helpless, though we can do some stuff. In the grand scheme of things, we do not have power. We do not have authority. We do not have ability to, uh, to accomplish things apart from the work of God. And so prayer helps us to acknowledge something that's always true, and that's that we're dependent. And so we kind of tease one another when we say, well, since I, you know, there's nothing else I could do about it, so I prayed, you know, and we laugh at each other as if prayer is a small thing. And, and it is kind of a joke. But, but what prayer is doing is it's, it's helping us to see and acknowledging to ourselves and before God, I can't solve this problem. And so here was the church 
acknowledging their dependence upon God and crying out on behalf of Peter. And so that's the enemy's attack, right? When we move on to the enemy being thwarted now for several paragraphs, we see this miraculous release. I continue reading in in, uh, verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night... Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, immediately, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And so we see this miraculous release. And it's, there's a, a great deal of detail in there. And there seems to be even a little bit of humor sort of in this conversation between the angel and Peter as Peter's sort of responding, you know, uh, kind of like adult. You know, he wakes him up and there's Peter awake. And he says, get dressed. So he gets dressed. And then the angel has to say, get dressed all the way, you know, <laughs> and follow me. And, and, uh, and so Peter does. Peter doesn't realize what's going on. He thinks he's seeing a vision. And so uh, there are some allusions back here to the Exodus with the, the cloak and the sandals and, the, and follow me and all. Seems to be some allusions back to the Exodus, which would be interesting in light of the fact that this is the Passover that they're about to celebrate. But the point is that God sends an angel to release Peter from this prison that Herod had locked down. He's chained on both sides and he's got people watching the door right? The the multiple doors are being guarded. And so there's no chance of him getting out. And yet, of course, the angel comes and nudges him awake and tells him to get dressed and gets him out past all of those. And the gate even opens by itself and they go out. And once Peter is clear of the, uh, of the dungeon and uh, the jail and all that stuff, he's, uh, the angel leaves him and he kind of comes to himself and realizes it wasn't a vision. God really did deliver me uh, from an impossible circumstance. And so of course, we read in uh, in 12 and following the, the uh, joyous reunion of what Peter does when he realizes it. So look at verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. And so you see a joyful reunion that Peter, once he realizes he's out and he's free, what does he do? Well, he, he, he 
goes to a place where he suspects there will be Christians gathering together. And I don't know if he knows they're praying at that exact time or whatever, but, but he goes there and he finds uh, this, this house where there's a prayer meeting going on, uh, specifically a prayer meeting regarding him. And this house happens to be the house of Mary, who's the mother of John Mark. And so Mark is going to become a character later on in the story that we're going to get to know better. But here we get sort of an introduction to him. And there's, again, there's more irony in here, right? That after all those gates opened by themselves and the doors and the light shining and the miracles and all that stuff going on to get Peter out of, uh, out of jail, he has trouble getting into the prayer meeting. There's, there's some irony there, and I, I don't really know what that's intended to convey, but, but he shows up, and all these other doors have opened of, the, you know, of, of themselves, and then he finds Rhoda, and instead of opening the door, she runs off and reports, hey, Peter's out there, Peter's out there, and, and, uh, and of course, the people who are praying probably for Peter's release at that very moment, when they hear the report, hey, Peter's been released, he's standing outside, they don't buy it, right? First, they say, Rhoda, you're crazy. Right? You're just crazy. You've been praying too hard or fasting too long or something, right? But you're crazy. And so she keeps insisting, no, I'm not crazy. He really is out there. I, I heard his voice. And they say, well, maybe it's his angel, right? Kind of maybe the idea of uh, sort of a Jewish idea of the guardian angel uh, idea who could take kind of your form or sound like you or whatever. That was sort of a Jewish myth that they, uh, that they understood. And they're thinking, well, maybe, you know, that's, maybe it's his angel, Right? But it takes a while for them finally to realize and to go get him, right? Because he's out there still banging away and still calling, hey, it really is Peter. You know, <laughs> I'm not his angel and I'm not uh, anything else. It's just Peter. And so he's reunited with them. And when they see him, they're overjoyed, right? And he finally has to like quiet them down and tell them the story that God got me out of prison. God released me from certain death. Herod was going to put me to death, and yet here I stand before you as if back from the dead. And uh, and so he tells them that, and then he says, tell James and the brothers uh, about what has happened. And then he left. Well, this is not James who at the beginning of the chapter who was put to death. That's that uh, at the beginning of the chapter is the apostle James, the son of Zebedee, uh, the brother of John. This James is the brother of the Lord who was one of the elders at the church in Jerusalem. And he was, uh, he's called a pillar of the church. He's one of the leaders in the, in the local community there of believers. And so he says, go and tell James and go and tell the brothers, possibly leadership or maybe the other people involved, uh, what has happened, uh, that God has sprung me free, that he got me out, that he rescued me from certain death. And then Peter leaves. And look where he goes, to another place. The author doesn't care to tell us where he went. The point is, he's not there anymore. He leaves. He, he goes uh, to another country, to another city, somewhere where he's anonymous. Something. We, he, he's escaping probably the attacks of Herod, but he, he leaves. And so that is, uh, that is what happens with Peter, is that he leaves the scene. He leaves Jerusalem, and he leaves really the book of Acts, at least for a period of time. We don't know any more about him. He's going to occur one more time in the book in chapter 15. And that's really all we hear about Peter. And so there's sort of a fading out of Peter. But if you think about what, what Jesus said the gospel was supposed to do, it was supposed to go forth from Jerusalem and go out into uh, all the world, right? And so that was started initially with the martyrdom of Stephen, and now it's continuing when even Peter, who had stayed behind when other people left, now even Peter leaves. And so we have no more evidence of any apostles staying behind, but they've all scattered and they've all gone. And so they are out and taking the gospel with them. 
And so we see this, uh, this joyous reunion, but it's not joyous for everybody. Look at verse 18. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. And so for Herod, who was really trying to make some political points, this is a disaster, right? It worked out great with James, but now with Peter, it's gone south. And not only that, but it uh, makes him look really bad because he can't even keep a prisoner, a simple prisoner. This guy's not violent. He's not a murderer. He's not, doesn't have people behind him springing him or anything like that. He's uh, just a simple prisoner and he can't keep him. And so doing the Roman thing, he goes after the guards. He questions them. And uh, when he finds out that Peter has escaped and they were the ones guarding, he puts them to death. And that's, that was the Roman thing to do, that if, a, uh, if someone guarding a prisoner allowed the prisoner to escape, then the penalty that was going to fall on the prisoner will now fall on the guard. So the guards are dead and Herod leaves town. And he moves on and goes up to Caesarea to spend time there. And so it's a disastrous loss for him. But at, at the end of this paragraph, we see that Peter is is free and he has gone somewhere and it's not important to us. It's not important to the author here where exactly he's gone, but he's left and he's taken the gospel with him and he's, he's preaching where he goes. And there's speculation about where he went. He went to Rome and he was there for 25 years and all these things. And it's just speculation. There's no, there's no proof of that idea, but he went somewhere and Peter being Peter, I'm sure he couldn't keep his mouth shut. And he was probably preaching at every turn and probably spent some more time in jail along the way. But uh, the end result is that he's free. The church is encouraged. And Herod himself is frustrated so much so that he leaves, right? Well, now we come to our our, uh, section here where we're going to see further development of what's happening with our enemy, with Herod himself. And we're going to see him be destroyed here. Look at verse 20. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. And so we see Herod and uh, and what he does when he goes off to Caesarea and there was a squabble there was bad blood between uh, between Herod and the people of Tyre and Sidon because they were dependent upon him for food and somehow there was a trade issue going on or something and uh, so they wanted to make peace so that they could have trade again and they could have their you know food and and uh, things would be back to normal and so they approach him going through his chamberlain Blastus and just the details of how they go about accomplishing that but the end result is they set up a meeting and there's an appointed day when he's going to address them. He's going to talk to them about their situation. And so he dresses in his royal robes. And actually Josephus talks about this. Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived and wrote during this time, talks about this situation that actually it wasn't just like his royal robe as in, you know, this is my Tuesday robe, but it was like solid silver. It was woven silver silver in some special day, a special way. And so what he did, what Herod did was arrange that he was going to come up and take his seat on the throne right as the sun crept over the horizon and it shone on him and it just was blinding. It was like the, like a halo effect. It was, it was a beautiful thing to behold, right? He was enjoying this. He was really enjoying this kind of situation. He stands up and he delivers his speech and, and, uh, his speech is so impressive to them that they begin to shout the voice of a God and not of a man. 
And uh, Josephus, in writing about the same thing, includes more along those lines, that, that Herod was really being worshipped. They were treating him as if he were a god. And uh, that which wasn't uncommon during this day in, in this part of the world, that you know princes and kings were considered to be not just royalty, but actually divine. And so that's being ascribed to Herod himself. And what does he do with it? He accepts it. It doesn't bother him at all. Like He's kind of enjoying this whole thing. He's enjoying the accolades, especially probably in light of the humiliation of what went, by, uh, went on in Jerusalem. And so he's accepting their worship and taking that for himself, and he just loved it. But we see as we continue on that God did not love it. Look at verse 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And that's the end of Herod. That's judgment rendered upon him. And our verse here tells us, it's just a compact little verse, but it, it includes a lot of information there. The reason was because he had accepted worship. He didn't give God the glory. He took it for himself. Right? And that's the reason behind it. And, and what ends up happening is that an angel of the Lord strikes him and kills him. And what does it look like? Well, he was eaten by worms. Right? I don't, I don't want to paint too much of a picture on that. I don't want to draw too much of that to, to mind. The, the scholars kind of like to speculate on this, I'll tell you. As I was reading through it, I was like, come on, guys. <laughs> like, I don't need to know about what kind of different worms and all. And, and they go into detail about how this can all happen and what it looked like. And Josephus goes even into detail. And the point is, he died by being struck by God, and it was a horrific, painful way to die. Josephus said it's, it, dra- it dragged on for five days. That's how long it took him actually uh, to, to die. But the point is, he was judged. So this person who has stood against God's people, who actually had one of God's children, more, more than that, an apostle put to death and tried to do the same with Peter, that one who is such an enemy, such a representative of Satan against God's church, has been, has been put to death. He's been judged. And so he didn't get away with it. He got away with it for a while, and he was very powerful, but he's been judged. What's the result for the church? Look at 24 and 25. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from, uh, from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So we see that the ministry, rather than being shrunk or rather than being decimated or rather than being discouraged, it actually improved. It actually increased that the word of God multiplied. It went out greatly. It was very strong. It was expanding as it went. And so the church was thriving. The gospel was being proclaimed and people were coming to Christ, even despite the fact that this whole situation had led to the death of one of their own. And now all of their leadership is scattered. Peter, who's been their leader for all these years, is gone. And, uh, and the result for these people is great benefit. Uh, the gospel is going forth. The word of God is increasing. It's multiplying and people are being saved. And so we have a few takeaways in light of our passage here. I just, I'll, I'll note before we move on to our takeaways here that we are introduced, reintroduced again to Barnabas and Saul. And we see that they go back up to Antioch and they take with them uh, John Mark. And we're going to see in the next chapters what that's going to turn into, a great first missionary journey. So what do we make of all of this? It's kind of following Herod all the way through to his demise. We're seeing some things that he's done and, uh, and that, were, that were just terrible. And then we see his terrible end, of course. Well, uh, just a few takeaways for us. First of all, 
Opposition to the gospel and to the church often does not have the intended result. Leaders or uh, governments come against the church, come against the gospel because they want to squash it. They want to get rid of it. They want to put it down. But it has often the opposite result. Tertullian, who's a 2nd and 3rd century Christian, said this, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Yeah, there was a martyr, and much fruit sprang up as a result. That's first observation. Second one, Christ's enemies will surely be destroyed eventually, even if it's only in eternity. I'm reminded of Psalm 73, and I'm going to turn there real quick. You don't have to, but you can if you want. I'm going to read from Psalm 73 and, and uh, wrestling that, that was going on in, in the psalmist's mind when he looked at those wicked who prospered. Look at verses 1 through 3. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on to talk about how they're healthy. They've got all the stuff they want. Their relationships seem to be in order. Everything seems to be going their way. And, and this, was, this was bothering me, says our psalmist here. And he continues on in verse 16 and 17. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. And so he says, he says, when I look at them, when I compare their life to my life, and I see that they're healthier than I am, I struggle with health problems, or they have more money, and, and I, I struggle just to get by, and, and they, they have, you know, people love them, and people really don't like me all that much, or all of those sorts of struggles. He said, when I thought about it on those terms, it drove me nuts. I couldn't solve it. But then I went into the sanctuary of God, and I thought about eternity. And then I realized their end. The enemies of Christ will surely be destroyed. Maybe not in this life. Maybe not for a long time. But in eternity, they certainly will. That gives us hope in a certain sense when we see someone succeeding around us, when we see that we struggle and others don't. When we see that, you know, our life has a lot of problems. And I'm not even, you know, responsible for all of them. You know, a good chunk are my fault. <laughs> but I have, you know, I, I look at my life and I see struggles. And then I look at the life of someone who hates the Lord, couldn't, just couldn't care less, and their life seems like smooth sailing. And then the psalmist came into the sanctuary of God and thought about eternity and thought about God and who He is and realized their end. Third observation, there is no circumstance from which it is impossible for God to rescue you. No circumstance is impossible. If God was able to rescue Peter from Herod's considerable grasp, he had, he had total authority, and he had guards set, and he had things taken care of, and he was not going to let Peter escape, and what did God do? He made Peter escape. didn't matter what Herod did. God is able to rescue you whatever your troubles are. Fourthly, though, the gospel of the kingdom is not about easing human suffering. Our chapter started off with James being executed. He really did die. 
we have a big long story and, and telling of how Peter was rescued and all the things that happened with Peter and how the church benefited and all those things. But we do see that it started with James dying. The gospel is not about easing human suffering. The gospel is not about improving our condition in this life. Surely the church had prayed for James too. It wasn't as if they thought of praying only after James had died and they had thought, wow, uh, you know, maybe we should pray for Peter and that won't happen. I'm sure they had prayed for him. He had died anyway. And some of us may have been taught to think that believing the gospel will make your life better. Trusting Jesus will make your life better. And that's a teaching that's common in our culture right there. Maybe it'll uh, improve our finances in, in some teachings, or maybe it'll improve our relationships or our family or our health or something else. This passage makes a biblical truth very clear. The salvation that we possess by being in Christ is a spiritual salvation. It is true that in glory, all your suffering will be taken away. It is true that in the church, you do have brothers and sisters in Christ who can comfort you and help you get through difficulties. That's an improvement. And it is true that in obedience to Christ, you may find that you avoid certain types of life suffering that are, that are caused by certain choices that we might otherwise make. You may find an improvement in your situation in light of that, but the gospel is not about easing human suffering in this life. It's about God's work to address a much deeper concern, what to do with our sin, what to do with our separation from God, because the gospel is about our spiritual condition. And so we come to communion today. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are calling to mind the good news of the gospel. Right? Far from uh, merely being imprisoned by a bloodthirsty earthly king like Peter was, we were all born in a state of rebellion against God, distant from him, removed from him, and actually objects of his wrath because of Adam's fall. And that's the condition we were born in. As God's enemies, we deserved God's wrath and judgment. By God's eternal plan, God the Son became the man, Jesus. And where Adam and we disobeyed God in sin, Jesus always obeyed his Father perfectly. In the greatest redemptive act in history, Jesus took our sin upon himself and bore the wrath of God for sinners when he died on the cross. And if a sinner will repent and believe in Christ as Lord, he will be forgiven of his sins and he will stand before God holy and blameless and righteous because of what Christ has accomplished. That's the concern. That's the suffering that was addressed in the gospel. And so we come to the Lord's Supper. And this is a time when we as Christians join to celebrate that fact, join to celebrate that Jesus paid the penalty for us that he took our the wrath that we deserve because of our disobedience and put that uh, on Jesus himself so that Jesus suffered in our place that we might stand before God holy and righteous because of what he's done. And so this is for Christians to celebrate. And so if you have not put your faith in Christ, if you are not a Christian, if you are not in Christ, just, just let the elements pass. And just think about what's being said and just hear that, that call from God to repent and believe the gospel. And Christians, this is a time when we call to mind what has happened on our behalf miraculously. The rescue of Peter was nothing. 
compared to the rescue of our souls by Jesus. And this is a time when we call that to pass. We think to pass. We think about that. We think about this privilege that we have as sinners by nature and born children of wrath that we have been reconciled to God through faith in Christ. And so as the bread and the cup are served, just hold on to them for a moment. We'll partake all together and think about what Jesus has done for us. Think about the, the, the offering that he made on our behalf. This is a time also to reflect in our own heart and recognize the sin that's there and confess that to God. And then rejoice in this forgiveness and that restoration of relationship that we have in Christ. And so I would ask the men to come forward and, and uh, we will serve our communion time. By the way, the communion bread that we serve is gluten-free. And so you don't have to scramble somewhere else to find some other. Uh, but we're going to uh, partake of this together. And we're going to start off, we move to the bread first. The bread which represents the body of Christ broken for us. And so we partake and we call to mind, we remember what has been done on our behalf in Christ. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So men, if you would take up the bread, please.